Good morning, everyone. Let's begin with a word of prayer as we dive into Lesson 15, How to Attain Contentment. We're going to deal with this chapter in two parts. So, Lesson 15 of our study, the chapter title is How to Attain Contentment. This is part one of two. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful Lord's Day and for the opportunity to be together. Um, It is a great blessing to assemble together as your people, united together in Christ Jesus. We thank you for the opportunity to consider your most holy word, especially as it pertains to this subject, uh, the subject of contentment. We pray that you would help us to finish strong in this study, to uh, understand what contentment is and how to lay a hold of it, O Lord. Um, We pray that you would give us this precious gift In Christ's name we pray. Amen. How to attain contentment. Look at this. I've already messed up on my outline. Didn't even make it past point one. Uh, That's the old heading. It's funny how I only see it when I stand before you, right? First, the introduction. Uh, Now we are coming to the close of this point of contentment which Jesus Christ teaches those who are in His school. This is a quote from Jeremiah Burroughs. We have opened the point to you and showed you wherein the art and skill and mystery of Christian contentment lies, and many things in the way of application rebuking the want of it. In the last chapter I finished that point of showing the various reasonings of a murmuring and discontented heart, I shall now, being desirous to make an end, leave what was said and proceed to what remains. There are only two things for working your hearts to this grace of Christian contentment. A. To propound several considerations for contenting the heart in any afflicted condition. B. To propound directions what should be done for working our hearts to this. So this is what we are going to consider today. Several considerations for contenting the heart in any afflicted condition. Uh, Part A of this chapter is what we'll be covering. First of all, the first point under this heading. We should consider in all our wants and inclinations to discontent the greatness of the mercies that we have and the meanness of the things we lack. So if we, are lacking, if we are lacking contentment, if we are filled with discontent, we should consider how great the mercies are that God has shown to us, especially in comparison to the meanness of the things we lack, how little the things we lack really are. We should compare the two things. The things we lack, if we are godly, are things of very small moment in comparison to the things we have. And the things we have are things of very great moment, very great significance or weight. For the most part, the things for the want of which people are discontented and murmur are such things as reprobates have or may have. So here Burroughs is wanting us to see how blessed we truly are in Christ Jesus, how how many mercies have been bestowed upon us in Him. Uh, We are to remember that we have in Christ the forgiveness of sins. We have... a a very rich and sure inheritance in Christ Jesus. We have the new heavens and new earth. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the comfort of of God as our Father. Uh, We can pile up a list of all of the mercies that have been showered upon us in Christ Jesus. And if we are to compare those things to 
the things we lack, we would, we would find that we are very blessed indeed, and discontent would melt away. Blessed be God, says the Apostle in Ephesians 1.3, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Burroughs says, It may be you have not such great blessings in earthly places as some others have, but if the Lord has blessed you in heavenly places, that should content you. Again, I keep coming back to this thought that really, in order to be content, we must live with eyes of faith. We must see with eyes of faith. We must truly believe that these things are true, that we have been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Uh, we, we must really believe that to be true. If we believe that to be true, then we will see that the blessings we have are much, much greater than anything we lack as it pertains to the things of this earth. But if we do not really believe that, then uh, we will struggle in this regard. We will fix our minds upon the things that we do not have here in this world. Uh, Burroughs made this little remark, and I think it's worth noting that uh, the things for the want of which people are discontented and murmur are such things as reprobates have or may have. Um, so he is making the point here, you, you murmur and complain about not having the things that worldly people might have, but you have so much more in Christ Jesus. You are truly very rich and well supplied in Christ Jesus. Fix your minds upon that and see that you are blessed indeed. So that is point one. Point two in this section, the consideration that God is beforehand with us with His mercy should content us. You may lack many comforts now, but God has not, but has not God been beforehand with you heretofore? Uh, here Burroughs is encouraging us to remember the blessings of God that have been upon us in the past. God has been with us up to this point. He has blessed us. He has provided for us. Up to this point, we should remember these past blessings. Here he uses an illustration of an, ex, uh, of an experience that he had with a, go, a godly man. I remember reading of a good man who had lived to 50 years of age and enjoyed his health for 8 and 40 years to the age of 48, exceedingly well, and lived in prosperity. But the last two years his body was exceedingly diseased. But he reasoned the case with himself thus... O Lord, you might have made all my life a life of torment and pain, but you have left me, but you have, but you have left me eight and forty years in health. I will praise your mercies for what I have had, and will praise your justice for what now I feel. Um, quite a perspective here uh, that this man. Uh, though he was greatly afflicted in the last couple of years of his life, would give God glory for the 48 years of good health and of great blessing here on this earth that God bestowed upon him. Uh, this is a godly perspective. I, I don't know how many um, lay a hold of this kind of contentment or this kind of per perspective. I think many, in the moment that affliction comes upon them, they only grumble and complain against God and they forget all of the past mercies that have been bestowed upon them. A wonderful perspective. Number three, the consideration of the abundance of mercies that God bestows and we enjoy. So we can, should again consider um, all of the mercies that God has bestowed upon us presently. It is a saying of Luther, the sea of God's mercy should swallow up all our particular afflictions. Uh, name any affliction that is upon you, there is a sea of mercy to swallow it up. 
If you pour a pail full of water on the floor of your house, it, it makes a great show. But if you throw it into the sea, there is no sign of it. So, afflictions considered in themselves we think are very great, but let them be considered with the sea of God's mercies we enjoy, and then they are not so much. They are nothing in comparison. I, I love that illustration there. Uh, it's a similar point to the one that was made in point one, but a little bit different. Um, here, I think, Burroughs is encouraging us, along with Luther, to really focus upon um, the, the mercies that God has shown to us uh, and, and to not fixate so strongly upon the afflictions. If our minds are just consumed with thoughts of the afflictions that are upon us, then really the afflictions seem to be very big. Uh, but in comparison to the mercies of God that He has bestowed upon us, they are truly very small. Um, we have a sea of mercy bestowed upon us, and the afflictions we experience are but like a pail of water in comparison. Four, consider the way of God towards all creatures. God carries on all creatures in a vicissitude, that means change or alteration, of several conditions. Thus, we do not always have summer, but winter succeeds summer. We do not always have day, but day and night. We do not always have fair weather, but foul, or fair and foul. The vegetative creatures do not always flourish, but the sap is in the root, and they seem to be dead. Now, seeing God has so ordered things with all creatures, why should... Why should um, it be, I have to uh, fight my way through whatever this is here. Um, why, should it, why should it be different with us concerning the, the, the change or alterations of the conditions that we experience? Sometimes in a way of prosperity and sometimes in a way of affliction. So here Burroughs is encouraging us to look out upon the natural world and to see that all of God's creatures experience this. They, they experience times of flourishing and times of, um, I don't know what word am I looking for. They, they flourish for a time, but at a time they seem to be languishing. You know, it's that way even with the plants. It, it, when, when, when autumn comes, the leaves of the plant fall away, the fruit drops to the ground, the trees seem to be dead, but when spring returns... Uh, the, the, the leaves bud again and the fruit returns. And, and so it is with us. We, we're going to experience these changes in life. We're going to experience good times and bad times of plenty and times of want. And of course, the whole point of this book is to encourage us to be content in the Lord in each and every season. Five. Here's an interesting point. Uh, the creatures suffer for us. Why should not we be willing to suffer to be serviceable to God? Again, this is a consideration of the natural world. Uh, Burroughs is encouraging us to consider the way that the creatures suffer for us, for our benefit. Uh, God subjects other creatures. They are fain to lose their lives for us, to lose whatever beauty and excellence they have to be serviceable to us. Why should not we be willing to part with anything in service for God? That's a very interesting um, observation there. Look at how the creatures, the things that God has created, serve us by, by um, suffering some loss for our sake, even to the point of, of death. Animals die so that we might have life. Uh, and Burroughs is saying if, if, it is, 
if it is this way in the natural world, if creatures suffer for our, for our benefit and for our good, should we not be willing to suffer for the glory of God? The difference between the creature and us is not so great in comparison to the difference between us and God Himself. So much more so should we be willing to suffer for the glory of God uh, than the creature is willing to suffer for us. Uh, that struck me as a very uh, interesting and profound observation here. Six, consider that we have but a little time in this world. The scriptures often encourage us to, to do this, right? To consider how brief our life here on this earth is using expressions like our life is but a vapor, you know. That we, we, we tend to think as if we are going to live forever and ever here on, on this earth. Um, but the way of wisdom teaches us to number our days, to see that even if our lives are very long in, in, in terms of um, how the lives of men go here on earth, uh, still it is but a drop in the bucket. It is but of, our lives are but a vapor. And Burroughs is encouraging us to do that and to consider our affliction, afflictions in this, um, in this context. If you are godly, you will never suffer except in this world, Burroughs says. So you're suffering if you are in Christ, if your sins are forgiven, if you have eternal life in Christ Jesus, your sufferings, your afflictions are confined to this world and our time on earth is very brief. I continue now quoting Burroughs. Why do but shut your eyes and soon another life is come? As that martyr said to his fellow martyr, do but shut your eyes, he said, and the next time they are open you shall be in another world. When he was banished, Athanasius said, it is but a little cloud, and it will be over, notwithstanding, soon. So this is but a little cloud. Soon it will pass, was Athanasius' perspective. And we are to have the same perspective concerning our afflictions here on earth. Uh, this thought came to my mind, and it's a thought similar to the point that I made earlier. I think one of the major problems, <laughs> to put it bluntly, is that Christians tend to be far too worldly. And we lack contentment as a result of it. We might not think of ourselves as worldly. We're not out uh, living uh, overtly sinful lives, you know, indulging the flesh in extreme ways in the way that the world might. Uh, but I think if we were to examine our hearts, uh, we perhaps would have to admit that, no, in fact, our affections really are set upon the things of this world. We are living as if this is it. We're living for this life and, and forgetting about the life to come. I think Christians do struggle with this kind of worldliness. It may not be overt and extreme sin that we're indulging in, but as it pertains to our love and, and our affections and our purpose, I think Christians do struggle with this, uh, living for the life to come, as the Scriptures call us to. Instead, we live for this life. Uh, throughout this book, we are being exhorted to have faith, to live for the life to come, to not be so concerned with the afflictions of this life. And of course the point here is that the time that we have in this world is indeed brief and our afflictions are confined to this world. They will soon pass. 7. Consider the condition that others have been in who have been our betters. We make some use of this we made some use of this before to show the evil of discontentment, but further it is a mighty argument to work on our hearts, a contentedness in any condition. You many times consider who are above you, but consider who are under you. 
So he's encouraging us here to consider the way that the faithful have suffered in times past. There are biblical examples piled up here in this section. Uh, consider Jacob, who was the heir of both Abraham and Isaac, for the blessing was on him and the promise ran in him, yet he was in a poor, mean condition. So Abraham was a great man, very wealthy, but Jacob, his grandson, um, struggled. He was in a poor and mean condition uh, for a time. Remember, he was on the run, fleeing for his life because his brother pursued him. Uh, and so he experienced difficulties. And we know how Elijah was fed with ravens and how he had to shift from his life from time to time and run into the wilderness up and down. And so did Elisha and the prophet Jeremiah was put into a dungeon and oh how he was used. So we should remember how the prophets of old suffered in this world. See, the great instruments of God in the first reformation lived in great straits in a very low condition. Even Luther himself when he was about to die, though he was much, though he was a man of, of such public use and was a great man in the courts of princes, said, Lord, I have neither a house nor lands nor estate to leave anything to wife or children, but I commit them to thee. Uh, evidently, these were, this was Luther's condition at the end of his life. He had nothing to leave to his wife and children as he departed uh, this world. Um, I should add, I think, to letter C. We should remember uh, the kinds of sufferings experienced by those who lived in the days when Jeremiah Burroughs lived and wrote uh, this book here. He, he, was not, he was not speaking as one who had not suffered afflictions himself. He was speaking from and writing from experience. And certainly uh, the congregation that he wrote to knew what it was to suffer. Uh, they probably struggled greatly with this issue of contentment. Many of them had flourished perhaps for a time, but had lost all. And those days in which Jeremiah, Jeremiah Burroughs lived were indeed very tumultuous. Um, we think that our day and age is tumultuous, and it is in its own respect. But the truth of the matter is that politically in, in these days, whoever came to the throne would have a dramatic impact upon uh, those who lived in the land, religiously speaking. If a Protestant came to the throne, uh, the Protestant leaders would flourish. If a Roman Catholic came to the throne, the Protestant leaders and their congregations would have to flee for their lives. They, they lost all. They would have to flee their homes. Everything would be forsaken. Um, so we should remember how extreme uh, the days in which Jeremiah, Jeremiah Burroughs lived were and how great the sufferings were that these people experienced. So he is reminding us to remember those who have gone before us. Letter D, but above all set Christ before us, who professes that the birds of the air had nests and the foxes had holes, yet the Son of Man had no place to hide his head. Such a low condition was he in. So above all, remember Christ and how he suffered in, this, in, in the whole of life. We tend to think of the cross when we think of the sufferings of Christ. Indeed, that was the pinnacle of his suffering but we should not forget that Christ really did suffer in the whole of his life. He, he was born in a very low condition, and he remained in a very low condition all the days of his life, even up to his crucifixion. But God highly exalted him. Eight, 
before your conversion, before God wrought upon your soul, you were contented with the world without grace, though you had no interest in God or Christ. Why cannot you now be contented with grace and spiritual things without the world? <laughs> I also thought this was an interesting question that Burroughs pressed upon his, his audience. You know, before you had, every, you had the world but no grace. Now you have grace and you've lost privileges and, and, and prosperity in the world, why can you not be content now? You have something greater. You, you have all of these riches in Christ Jesus because God has bestowed His grace upon you even though it has cost you the things of this world. Why can you not be contented now? That is the point made in section 8. 9. Yea, consider when God has given you such contentments, you have not given Him the glory. Consider... When God has given you such contentments, you have not given Him the glory. I think here Burroughs, when he says contentments, is referring to worldly things. Consider in the past when God has blessed you with these worldly comforts, you failed to give Him the glory. Letter A fleshes this out. When God has let you have your heart's desire, what have you done with your heart's desire? You have not been any better for it. It may be you have been worse many times. Therefore, let that satisfy you. I met with crosses, but when I had contentment and all things coming in, God got but little or no glory from me, and therefore let that quiet me in my discontented thoughts. I think he is here saying, listen, you, you failed to give God the glory when you had these worldly comforts given to you, but now that you have crosses, now, now that you have sufferings coming upon you, you have an opportunity to give God the glory in the midst of the sufferings. And so let this bring uh, contentment to your hearts. If indeed we are living for the glory of God, this will bring contentment to our hearts. And then finally, number 10. Consider all the experiences that you have had of God's doing good to you in the want of many comforts. I love this point. They're all wonderful points. I, I, I did want to spend the most time on point 10. Finally, let me read it again. Consider all the experience that you have had of God's doing good to you in the lack of many comforts. So think to the past and remember how God has blessed you in the midst of past afflictions. You might not have seen it then, but you could see it now. Yes, that was a very difficult affliction that I endured, but I can see now, looking back, how the Lord used it to bring good to me, to, to bless me in some way, to refine me, to sharpen me, to, to um, cause me to cling more tightly to God and to Christ. We can see it as we look to the past, and Burroughs is saying, consider it, do not fail to do this, but to see the good that God has brought out of the trials and tribulations of life in the past. He fleshes this out here, letter A. When God crosses you, have you never had experience of abundance of good in afflictions? It is true, when ministers only tell men that God will work good out of their afflictions, they hear them speak and think they speak like good men, but they feel little or no good. They feel nothing but pain. But when we cannot only say to you that God has said He will work good out of your afflictions, but we can say to you that you yourselves have found it so by experience that God has made former afflictions to be great benefits to you, and that you would 
not have been without them or without the good that came by them for a world, such experiences will exceedingly quiet the heart and bring it to contentment. Therefore, think thus with yourself, Lord, why may not this affliction work as great a good upon me as afflictions have done before? If I could untangle all of that uh, for you. Uh, what Burroughs is saying is that it's one thing for a preacher to stand before you and to teach this beautiful truth. God is able to work good through the trials and tribulations that you experience. You know, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, knowing that God will use these trials to produce good things. I mean, that could be said to you, and you will listen to it and say, yes, that is true, that, that is good. This man speaks truth, it's biblical, it, it's scriptural, here it is. But you don't feel it in the heart and soul unless you have experienced it, perhaps. Unless you reflect upon the, the past experiences that you have had. Um, you, it, it, it penetrates the mind, maybe, and maybe you agree, upon, agree with these truths intellectually. But if you have experienced afflictions and you have seen what it is like for God to bring good out of them, then you're able to reflect upon those experiences and feel it more strongly and believe it more strongly. Yes, it is true. The Lord has brought good out of the afflictions that I've experienced in the past. And what Burroughs is encouraging his, his audience to do is to, is to reason within ourselves in this way, why may not this affliction that I'm now experiencing work as great a good upon me as afflictions have done before? It is interesting how in the midst of afflictions, it's hard for, for us to see how good could possibly come from the affliction. It is difficult. But by walking by, but as we walk by faith, we are at least able to reason within ourselves, going, you know what? The Lord has brought good out of past afflictions. I know for certain He will bring good out of this one, though I cannot see what it will be in the moment. I know He will do it. We... We know He will do it because He has promised to do it. He has promised to keep us, to never leave us nor forsake us, to finish the work that He has begun, again, begun in us. Uh, so we, we are to know this by faith. B, I will add only one word to this, of one who was once a great merchant and trader. His name was Zeno, and it happened once that he suffered shipwreck, and he said, I never made a better voyage and sailed better than at that time that I suffered shipwreck. So here Burroughs is talking about this fellow, this merchant and trader, Zeno, and this strange comment that he made after uh, running aground, saying, that was the best voyage I've ever made. What did he mean by that? Now this was a strange saying, but he meant because he got so much good by it. God was pleased to bless it so far to him that he gained much to his soul by it. So much soul riches that he made account that it was the best voyage that he ever had. Um, interesting. Uh, Zeno, by suffering shipwreck, learned a lot through the experience. Uh, maybe the Lord awakened him spiritually through the terror of that experience. And this needs to be our perspective as well. Um, you can look to the past, you can see how God has worked good in the midst of maybe smaller afflictions, perhaps you're in the midst of a larger affliction now, 
And you must walk by faith and not by sight and say, Lord, you have been with me in the past. You've brought good out of the afflictions of the past. I trust that you're doing the same thing now. You're able to bring much good to me in the midst of this affliction as well as all others. And then letter C, and it looks like we'll have some time for discussion. You know, sometimes it is better to be in a little ship, for they have an advantage over greater ones in storms many times. In a storm, a little ship can thrust in a shallow place and be safe, but your great ships cannot. God therefore puts you in a smaller vessel that you may be more safe. Uh, This is just a little excerpt from a larger section here. But I think here Burroughs is speaking to a congregation, perhaps filled with members who did in this time suffer great loss. Perhaps they had great estates and they were lost. Perhaps they had a lot of money in their savings accounts and it was lost. Uh, Perhaps they had a great um, prestige in society and that was taken away from them. And so Burroughs applies this illustration to them saying, you know, when the storms of light, when the storms come upon sailors, sometimes it's better to be in a little tiny boat than in a really large boat. You know, those little tiny ships, they're more nimble. They can tuck into coves that the larger ships cannot tuck into. And perhaps the Lord is doing this with you now, he is saying to his um, congregation. Perhaps the Lord has brought you low, but for a reason, so that he might sanctify you further and even preserve you in this time of difficulty. I think it is a good word uh, for us. We need to be contented with whatever the Lord's will is for us. uh, And we we must know that the Lord will be with us. He will keep us and He is doing something in us right now. And it may be even through this affliction that we are experiencing that the Lord is preserving us to all eternity. We must again walk by faith and not by sight. Any questions or comments uh, on this section or the ones we've considered previously. Becky. Could you remind me please um, the time period and where he is? Yes. First published in 1648 in in England. Um, He's a Puritan independent. Uh, So not always in favor with the governing authorities, um, kind of living on, on, on the outskirts of things. You know, a very well-respected man, but not always in favor with the authorities, and certainly a shepherding a congregation that was not always in favor with the authorities. So I think, yes, this congregation, along with Jeremiah Burroughs himself, uh, would, would, have, would have found themselves tossed to and fro from time to time. Uh, sometimes great persecution coming upon those who were um, not in conformity uh, to the established religion of the day. We are nonconformists, by the way. You, you know that? We are nonconformists. That, that is our heritage. Um, and I, I, th- I think if you look at what we do and, and, and who we are, in comparison to broader evangelicalism, the broader religious landscape, even the political movements today, we are still nonconformists. We're, we're committed to obeying Scripture even if no one else around us does. Uh, we're committed to 
speaking and believing the truth, even if the world is going mad around us. And being a nonconformist always has consequences. You understand? It always has consequences. Um, but Christ was a nonconformist, wasn't he? His disciples were nonconformists. Um, uh, I, I think the, the church in every age needs to at least be willing to not conform to the world around them. And very oftentimes they, they must not conform to the world around them. Very rarely in the history of the world has the, the culture that surrounds the church been anything like a Christian culture, you see. Yeah. Yeah, my dad is referring to an article he sent me, uh, just kind of given a biography on um, the, the disciples of Christ and, and who they were before and, and during the life of Christ and what they became after and what went, how things went with them. And uh, frankly, as it pertains to the things of this world, things did not go, go well for, for the disciples of Christ. They suffered greatly. And if we study church history, we see that there are many martyrs throughout the history of the church. You've heard of the book, uh, the, the uh, Voice of the Martyrs, um, Fox's Book of Martyrs. You've heard of this book before. It was actually uh, widely read in the 17th century. Uh, Christians would read this book, I think because it did encourage the Christians to stand firm in the midst of persecution because they themselves were being persecuted in this time. Uh, so it's, it's important for us to remember our heritage uh, that it, it, it has been a very rare experience for Christians to be well-respected within a culture. It's been a very rare experience in the history of the church for Christians to not experience some sort of persecution, be it physical persecution or at least isolation, um, you know, being shut out from the privileges that come to most who live in a particular culture. We should remember that, brothers and sisters. We should not be ashamed to embrace well, nonconformity and the consequences that come along with it. The world really does hate those who refuse to conform to their ways. They think it's strange that you do not run with them in the, in the flood of debauchery that, that, that they partake in. You know, and they, they persecute you for that. That's how things go. And um, yes, I think Burroughs was ministering to a congregation that um, was experiencing persecution. And in, in the days that followed this, they would experience even more so up until... Uh, the the 1660s with the um, Act of Toleration, you know, the, the nonconformist groups really did struggle a lot in this land. Yeah. Something else? No? I agree. Yes, I agree.
for the sake of the recording, uh, people suffered, Christians suffered throughout the history of the church. Why should we think that we have anything else uh, coming to us? The Lord may bless us with great prosperity and with peace, and, and we pray that the Lord would bless this land with uh, great peace and with toleration and with freedoms. We pray that way. We even work for that in the political realm. That is all true, and who knows what the Lord will do. Um, you know, we've had some surprising victories politically uh, as of late, haven't we? And so I'm not saying we should live with a dour, you know, downer, pessimistic perspective. There's no reason for that. Nevertheless, I think we should also just prepare ourselves to be faithful and true to Christ no matter what comes our way in this world. Amen? And if that means being on the fringes of society and being persecuted and suffering a bit, we have Christ. And what else do we need? I think that is the message of this book. We're to have our contentment in Him. Any other thoughts? or Jesse? You are, yeah. No, that's good, Jesse. You know, you know, I like the word sojourner, right? I, I use it. It's one of those words I think I, I use a lot. Um, but I think it's important for us to see ourselves as sojourners and to remember that this is not our home. We're strangers. We're aliens. We're living for the world to come. It's a very important uh, thing for Christians to remember, and we must truly live as sojourners. I, I my. My, my desire for myself, for my family, for this congregation is that we would lay hold of this precious gift of contentment, that we would be truly at peace inwardly, truly satisfied in Christ. Not, not like a raging sea inwardly and, and discontent, but, but truly satisfied in Christ. And that at the same time we would be 
optimistic concerning the future, that we would work very hard in this world, that we would be very wise, that we would be diligent, that we would be responsible, industrious, all of those things, all at the same time. That, that, that would be my desire for myself, my family, this congregation, that we would do both of these things, that we would be perfectly at peace inwardly so that if everything were to be stripped away from us in this world, we would be not undone but perfectly at peace with the Lord. Nevertheless, I, I do not want to encourage anyone to have this sort of resigned, um, passive defeatist sort of attitude as it pertains to life in this world either. You, you understand. I'll, I'll summarize it with this phrase that I've used over and over again. Contentment does not equal complacency. Being content does not mean that you just sit down and give up. That's the, those two things are not related at all. Being content means that you're inwardly at peace because you are in Christ and because you have strong faith in God who is sovereign over all. That's contentment. Your satisfaction is rooted in God. But God has called His people to do things in this world. To work diligently at whatever God has called them to do. To manage resources wisely. To labor for the furtherance of the kingdom of God. To be optimistic concerning the success of that. The gates of hell will not prevail against the furtherance of of his kingdom. The gates of hell will not prevail against the building up of Christ's church. So, all at the same time, we're to be content inwardly, and we are to be hardworking, diligent, optimistic, to be about the, what the Lord has called us to do. And here, here's the, the beautiful thing about it we will be most successful in the mission that God has given to us in this world. We will be most successful in our secular callings and in the accomplishment of the mission that Christ has given to His church when we are content. If we are discontent, we will make a mess of everything. That's the truth. If we are discontent inwardly, we will make a mess out of all of our endeavors. We will end up living for the things of this world. We will end up storing up treasures here but not there in eternity. We, we will end up uh, living as, as greedy, uh, worldly uh, sinful individuals, we will make a mess of everything. And so, again, I say uh, contentment does not equal complacency, brothers and sisters. Uh, being content in Christ does not mean that we must live with a pessimistic outlook, as if everything is going to fall apart. No, I, I think we can be very hopeful in Christ Jesus. Uh, but having contentment in the heart does free us to then do what God has called us to do, and to do it well, and to do it to the glory of His name. We're now out of time uh, with that final exhortation. So let's bow for a word of prayer. Uh, Father in heaven, I do pray that you would help us to, again, lay a hold of this precious gift of contentment. Uh, Lord, I pray uh, for my brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, for those who are suffering afflictions now, that you would give them contentment in the midst of their afflictions, that they would know for certain that you are able to work good through the afflictions we experience. Indeed, you have promised that you will work good uh, through these afflictions uh, for those who love you and who are called according to your purpose. Uh, so God, give us this faith, especially for those who are suffering now and for those who are experiencing uh, times of plenty, who are experiencing uh, times of flourishing 
I pray that you would bless them uh, with this gift of contentment too. That they would not find their peace or their joy or their satisfaction in the things of this world and in the blessings of this life, but in you. So help us in these things, O Lord. And make us diligent. Make us hardworking. Give us wisdom, O Lord, so that we might sojourn well in this world until Christ returns or until you call us home. In the name of Christ we pray and all of God's people say, Amen.